Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, the UK-based leftist Christian podcast that wants to support you to put Christ at the centre of your marriage. I'm Ben Molyneux Hetherington, and I'm joined by my beloved wife, Sarah Molyneux Hetherington. She really is the model of a Christ-honouring wife. She dresses modestly, does all the housework, has no opinions other than the ones I tell her to have, and is generally oblivious to what a colossal dickhead I am. Hello, Sarah. How are you today? <laughs> yeah, some of that was- wow! <laughs> Women, eh? They just love to talk and talk. Anyway, back to the most important thing now, which is a man speaking. <laughs> okay, I'm kind of sick of that bit now. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> you're done. You're done. You're okay now. You got that out your system. I just, I thought as neither Adam or Luca were able to join us today, we'd like pivot to being a proper Christian marriage podcast instead. Uh, how do you feel it's working? Are you... I mean, I have thoughts, I okay. guess. Our vibe was going to be we were like the edgy one where we do things like suggest things other than missionary position. So that would be. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed edgy. Um, yeah, I, well, in the world of Christian marriage podcast, it probably is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Didn't like you talking over me. Was not a <laughs> I genuinely fan. did think she might hit me if I do this, but. <laughs> I noticed the way you've positioned us means that it's quite hard for me to hit you. Was that yeah. intentional? Yeah. yeah, and that's intentional not just when we're recording, but at pretty much all times. Also, I feel like we can't really say that I hit you, because yeah. that has a whole... Yeah, and we're literally about to do a podcast about abuse, and I feel yeah. like we're... Yeah. Uh, Sarah doesn't... Well, no, she sometimes does hit me, but in like a playful, like, it's fine way. Like, Just cut to the music. Yeah. Um, oh, no. Where's Adam or Luca? <laughs> uh, yeah, sadly, neither of them are able to join us today. They are gallivanting around, doing the joyful things they do with their life, but because i got nothing going on, I recorded a podcast. Uh, but Sarah is here. Uh, I was having a bit of an internal debate about whether we call this your third appearance or fourth appearance on the basis that we did actually try to record this episode once already, but uh, it was such a gigantic balls up. Uh, not not from you, I hasten to add, but from Adam and I collectively that uh, the whole episode just didn't work at all, um, which was, if anyone remembers, when we recorded something last minute because it failed, that was what that was. So is this your third or fourth appearance? I've got a feeling you've done this to me once before and this might be my fifth. No, no, we we have we have got rid of recordings before that didn't work, but not with not with a guest on. You were, you were the first guest to get thrown into the dustbin. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. I feel so honoured. You should. Do I get a little award that has like a dustpin on dustbin on the top? <laughs> dustpan. Um, I'll have to uh, dustpan or dustbin. Oh, I'll have a dustpan. Okay. Yeah. For doing all the housework that you do according to the intro. That's... You do the housework. Well, actually, no, we share the housework. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I do the housework that I notice, and you do the housework that you notice, and therefore you do a lot of things that I don't really notice. That's... You're 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 growing though. You're learning. <laughs> yeah, growing mostly outwards, but <laughs> <laughs> you are learning. Um, you are currently doing a PhD. I am. People say to me, "Does that make your wife smarter than you?" And I say, "No, it makes me smarter than her because I wasn't stupid enough to do a PhD." That's not what you. <laughs> But your PhD centres around uh, experiences of abuse, particularly in the Church of England. It does, yeah. So you're here today to talk to us about the fun topic of abuse. We do just want to start with a bit of a content note, trigger warning, whatever you want to call it. We are going to do a bit of Mind Grapes, which is going to be unrelated to abuse, and then pretty much the whole episode is going to be about 
abuse in the church context. Uh, for some of you, that is going to be maybe too much to listen to. That's totally fine. Feel free to listen to the mind grapes. Um, but then from then on, it is going to be pretty much wall to wall abuse. Do whatever you need to do if, to look after yourself. Um, if you can't listen to this right now, then don't. That is totally fine. Um, yeah. So just, just so everyone is on the same page and aware, because this is obviously quite an emotive and difficult topic. Um, we aren't going to describe in any depth actual abuse that has occurred. Um, you can find that information if you want to find it, but it's not, it's not what we're here to do. Um, so we're not going to go into any detail, but we are going to talk more generally about, uh, abuse and the church. So just be aware of that and make decisions to look after yourself. But first, before we get into that, let's talk about something more fun. Sarah, what is on your mind grapes? What else is on my mind grapes? I think it's probably the submarine. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. I think has been occupying a lot of us. Uh, the submersible submarine. I'm not sure what the difference is, but if you say submersible, you sound smarter. Oh, so I'm going to say submersible. I don't think you pronounce it correctly. What? What? How should I pronounce it? I don't know. <laughs> well, I've definitely sounded smarter then. That's this really nailed that aspect. So, a bunch of rich people went down into a botched job tin can to go and see the wreck of the Titanic, and it imploded. But obviously, no one knew it imploded because it was very deep underwater for a couple of days. So it was kind of a search, and there are lots of stories about this. Um, it was extreme. I can't remember how much money it was, but it was a lot of money, wasn't it, to get on that submarine? It was six-figure. Yeah. And obviously, they all died. There's been a lot of jokes about it. And so we thought that it'd be interesting to have a bit of a conversation about some of the debate that's been going on about the morality of laughing at this stuff. Sarah, have you been laughing at anything around this? Yeah, 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 me too. yeah, yeah I have, um, yeah, yeah. Which makes me feel better that you're laughing because generally, like, I have much more of a dark, like, I don't want to say, when people say I have a dark sense of humour, they often mean that I like saying problematic stuff and pretending it's, uh, like, part of my sense of humour, um, which is not what I'm trying to say, but more just, like, when I hear something really, like, dark, like really like unpleasant my first response is often to laugh i think what's interesting is, is obviously yes there are real human lives that have been lost and families that agree with them and that that is tragic whenever life is lost it's mm. tragic don't get me wrong the reason why this has um i think captures people's imagination is the egregiousness of the huge search for five people compared to the hundreds of people who go missing at the exact same time and over the past few years, the way that migrants and asylum seekers and refugees and a whole range of people have lost their lives in the water. And there's been nothing like the amount of effort put in. And I think in the face of that egregious inequality, mm-hmm. humour is the place we go to. And then on top of that, there really just has been some ridiculous details that have come out. Yeah. So I quite like... Um, a Logitech controller. Yep. Brilliant. Um, Logitech, just this really shitty, you know, if you can't afford a PlayStation controller, you get a Logitech controller. Mm-hmm. That, that, that seems, yeah, that seems like a really dumb decision. Yeah. And um, particularly given that it was so obviously, like everyone who has seen a picture of that submarine has gone, Oh my goodness, I would not get in that. And do you know what? It was their third voyage. 
Yeah, well, and they had so they there was journalists who'd been down with them who were like, oh yeah, there was issues every time they went down. Like, yeah, I mean, lots of things like the beacon for safety and the all of this sort of stuff. But then it's also, I just like that you know we've been going, oh, eat the rich, eat the rich, eat the rich, and like the sea life went, all right. <laughs> Yeah. I got you, bro. <laughs> yeah, not unrelated to the fact that there's a bunch of orcas that are attacking boats as well. Yeah, um, which is just, I, I, even that. Like, I don't see how you can say it's morally wrong to laugh at that. Like, the orca uprising is happening. That's yeah. funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be fair, they've been put down for a long time. And and is it a stepson who was at a Blink One Eight Two concert? Yes. Great. Yeah, he has been uh, trying to uh, leverage his father, uh, stepfather's tragic death at sea to get laid on Twitter, uh, which I guess you have to respect the hustle, maybe? I don't know what else to say. Like, it's like all you can do with that is laugh at it, I think. Like, it's just so absurd. Yeah, I think it is the absurdity mm. of, of, of every element of this. There's no work being done by laughing at this, right? You are not bringing about the revolution by laughing at this stuff. And I think some people have maybe overstated being like, if we get enough people to laugh at rich people dying, then we'll finally recruit into the... And I just think, no, like, that's that's silly. But there is also a bit of, if I trip and fall and break my toe... You're probably going to be sympathetic with me. <laughs> probably not. Well, you generally, not you personally, <laughs> like you as in the listener, probably. If I go, hmm, I'm going to repeatedly kick this metal object and break my toe, you'd be like, you kind of did that to yourself, you idiot. And I think there's a bit here, it's hard to be sympathetic. If you have got into that submarine, paid a stupid amount of money to go and do something obviously stupid, and then something terrible happens... Sure, I guess on one level it's sad for the grieving relatives or whatever, but also this is very much the consequences of your own actions, right? You have you have shown extraordinary levels of hubris and uh, fate has come for you. So I guess it's hard to be sympathetic when it is mostly rich people doing incredibly dumb rich people things. No one is fully good or fully evil, but you don't get that rich by being a good person. You make the world worse, even if you have inherited all that money. The way in which that you maintain having that amount of money is in, is evil. People love to uh, explain away the camel eye of the needle story, but I think Jesus was pretty. You know, I'm going to go full full conservative evangelical. I'm fundamentalist on this. The Bible was quite clear on what Jesus was saying. He was saying it's really hard for rich people to get to heaven. <laughs> like it's not it's not subtle. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, 
where we've been joined by siblings from Sabeel Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. I like how we've come back full circle to a marriage podcast of let, let's talk about scripture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I often talk about let's talk about scripture on the show. Recently, that scripture has mostly been the writings of Karl Marx, but still. Like... Uh, <laughs> cut to the music. Cut to the music. All right, we are now heading into our section about abuse. So uh, for those of you who wanted to uh, make tracks, I hope you enjoyed that much less triggering segment about people dying. (laughs) (laughs) Very light and frothy today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we are now heading into new podcast, Same Old Nonsense, a segment for which we don't have a theme yet, but uh, we might. Previously, we needed a theme. We just got Lou to sing it. So we'll see what they come up with. We're going to just whip through some of the recent news about abuse in the church. Uh, we could spend the next six hours talking about this, uh, but we don't have the time. There's been a lot happening for the last almost two months now. There has been story after story about Soul Survivor, in particular the head honcho there, Mike Pilavachi. Soul Survivor, for those of you who don't know, was an Anglican church, is an Anglican church in Watford quite heavily into charismatic stuff. So modern styles of worship, think acoustic guitars and airy synthesizers, and lots of praying for people with hands on them, people falling over, people speaking gibberish or tongues, as they like to call it. All this sort of stuff, quite extreme manifestations of what they believe through the Holy Spirit. It was very influential within the church, both because of that individual church but also because they ran a large festival in uh the southwest wasn't it somerset right yes we've, we've both been there a lot yeah. and we're both looking each other like yeah <laughs> uh, we, we haven't were, been we in a long time and we weren't old enough to drive ourselves that's true <laughs> shepter mallet shepter mallet exactly don't know where that came from yeah yeah <laughs> from deep within the trauma of our brains <laughs> Lots of people, lots of teenagers, because it was a, a, aimed at teenagers, uh, quote-unquote, came to faith there. A number of them, although certainly not all, by some distance, uh, retained faith. And a, a lot of influential people within British evangelicalism have come out of that. 
In recent years, it's probably been supplanted by HDB as the kind of centre of power within particularly the Church of England, but the British Church more generally. But there was a lot of relationship and interplay and, um, yeah, they're not unrelated phenomenons, even if they are separate things. We will put in the, the notes some links to some places with full full details of what happened. But, Sarah, do you fancy just summarising for us what, some of the stuff or a bit of a broad narrative about what's come out? Yeah, so in short, uh, Mike Pellavacci was suspended as part of an ongoing investigation into allegations, both historic and then it turns out more recent as well. It became clear that the allegations of uh, Mike Pilavachi, or the disclosures, I don't really like the word allegations, but it's a legal term and it becomes part of our language. But the disclosures slash allegations about Mike Pilavachi having favourites of having particular young men who were on a pedestal, were, you know, he was obsessively supportive and inclusive and, you know, p- kind of got them all the best gigs and all the rest of it followed by ostracizing those same men and that game back on back and forward which was believed to include inappropriate behavior such as wrestling and massages it then became clear that this was known by in some quarters by some people for some time that complaints were first heard by the soul survivor leadership in as early as 2003 in amongst all of that, and subsequent to all of that becoming part of the national story, uh, other senior leaders within Soul Survivor, notably Andy Croft, have also stepped down. So what we have here is a story about a man who has touched pretty much every corner of the Church of England, either because people were part of those festivals, people were sending their kids to those festivals, or because they were one of the churches that didn't do that. Whatever it was, people were often defined in some sort of conversation with this. And so it's affected people in a whole range of ways. And it's affected some people in saying, you know, oh, I always knew there was something a bit not right there. Other people, it's blindsided them, all of that sort of stuff. One of the things I find really interesting about this is that surprise that people have reacted with. And surprise is natural. It's normal, right? It's when it shocks part of our understanding of the world. What surprised me is when people have not realised that this has got parallels that's happened before. So perhaps most notably, Emmanuel Church, Wimbledon and Jonathan Fletcher. And that case is almost beat for beat the same. You know, this is a again someone who's understood as a kingmaker in certain corners, you know, helped was a linchpin of a of the kind of conservative evangelical circles. People became very famous with with his say so and his get-go. And yet privately what was going on again was was massages, was was all this sort of stuff. And so it surprised when people were completely shocked because and saying, you know, nothing like this has ever been well, yeah, it has. It has. This is just the latest in a series. And that's what's really troubling, is where we still treat these things as surprising, shocking, horrifying, egregious one offs. They're not. They're part of a surprising, horrifying, egregious pattern that exists within our church. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really worth noting that it was described as an open secret by some survivors, and that certainly chanted my experience. I certainly don't want to present myself as someone who's particularly in the know or or heard the whole story, but I'd heard rumours going back almost a decade about how 
this man acted and how he treated people. And I was and am a nobody. This is not, people don't, you know, come to me to tell me secrets. It was just stuff that was kind of in the water. That's not to say that everyone should have known or that there was some, you know, responsibility on everyone to immediately know, oh, this is what's going on. But to recognize that if someone like me had heard murmurings, that there were a lot of people who were in positions of power and influence and authority who were discounting this stuff, or as some reports have it, actually trying to have a quiet word with the man on the side without actually launching any sort of serious investigation into it. Um, you've mentioned a lot of people were influenced by this stuff. You and I both, separately, long before we met, were regular Source Fire attenders at the festival as, as teenagers. And I don't know about you, it's been interesting to reflect back. Um, that's probably a part of the faith I was brought up with. I have pretty much roundly rejected at this point. Um, I try to be at least somewhat open-minded about charismatic and Pentecostal stuff. We recently spoke about some of the origins of the Pentecostal movement and how I'm slightly more, I don't know, understanding and open to that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, this this sort of stuff is not really part of my belief system anymore. But even then, reflecting back, stuff that I didn't recognise at the time or didn't know what to do with at the time, in terms of how Pilavachi was on stage and all that sort of thing, start to take on new resonances and you think, I was a teenager at the time, if I saw that stuff happening now, as an adult, knowing what I know, it would have been setting off all sorts of alarm bells. That's not to say I knew, oh, this man is definitely abusive, but certainly the things that were happening on stage were concerning, even if as a evangelical teenager I wasn't able to recognise it at the time. And I think what's so sad and stressing about this is that there were opportunities for people to do something about this a long time ago, and they weren't taken. Repeatedly, this could have been dealt with, and it took a national newspaper story for it really to start coming properly to light. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually a big factor or a big part of my my PhD is I take what's called a contextual safeguarding approach, which is when you move beyond a consideration of the individuals involved, the individuals of of the abuser and, and victims and how many people that may be, and you start to look at the context. So an example that's often given is if a secondary school has multiple issues with with sexual harassment at, at the school, at a certain point, you've got to consider what is going on in that context, in that school, in that environment, not just all the individuals involved. So that's what I'm doing a little bit with the Church of England is saying, well, let's move beyond the individual characters of, of what happened you know, in each interaction between different people and start to consider what impact and what complicity the context has. So when you look at something like Soul Survivor, you look at the context, you look at the fact that it was kind of one foot in, one foot out of the Church of England. So what impact that had? Again, that had huge parallels with Emmanuel Church Wimbledon that was a proprietary chapel, so it was one foot in, one foot out. You look at the way that some people, that that church, those churches are given special treatment, that they're seen as special. And and sometimes, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying we have to treat all churches the same. You know, sometimes things are going on that we don't understand. You know, I come from a pioneering background. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. However, 
the area where every church is the same is safeguarding. <laughs> I don't care what's going on. Safeguarding is an area that has to remain the same. So you consider that dynamic. You consider um, with the Church of England the flow of money. Church of England is somewhat infamously feeling poor, is feeling a poverty. You can argue about whether that poverty is real or not, and that's a whole other podcast, but it definitely feels a level of poverty. So churches that bring in money all of these different things. And then you start to think about the way that bishops function as accountability, but do they really? All of that kind of thing. And when you start to consider the context of Soul Survivor, you start to perhaps understand how things could have been an open secret, how things could have been known as early as 2003 and nothing has gone on. It's because a very particular context has emerged there. We know from organisational corruption studies and that area of research that the most organisational corruption occurs when you have a team of leadership, where you have a board of executives who reinforce each other's narrative. Soul Survivor has often had this board around it of, of people who have been fairly similar. The outside accountability, the you know equivalent of Bishop's Visitor, wasn't particularly pronounced. And so you have a people who are reinforcing a certain value. You have all the strain of success and all these kind of things, and you start to unpick that context. So that's what I'm doing in my PhD. But in rather than looking at Soul Survivor, I'm looking more broadly as the Church of England as a whole. And to kind of round out this news segment, I do think it's worth looking at that Church of England more broadly um, because that's where a lot of the news is coming from and the church more generally. There's been a few different stories that come out. Obviously, the public nature of the abuse story from Soul Survivor has meant that lots of people have come forward with, with their stories of abuse in a variety of contexts. One of the places that's had that is UCCF, which is the... I actually don't know what UCCF stands for off the top of my head. Oh, Yeah, right? United. <laughs> yeah. Union. Federation. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Union. UCC, yeah. <laughs> UCCF is the organisation that runs the Christian unions in most universities. Um, one of the things that I liked when we were both at Exeter University is that they insisted, the university insisted they had to call themselves the Evangelical Christian Union because they weren't actually for all Christians, but were very much of that uh, style. University and Colleges Christian Fellowship. I did know that. I just, yeah, forgot it. UCCF have had two board members who are currently suspended pending investigation. This seems to be uh, quite an internal investigation. They're calling it an external inquiry, but they are not going to publish any of the findings. So how external it really is, is open to uh, debate. But yeah, that, that is going on there. Accusations um, in that space. There have been lots of other churches and organisations that have had this stuff. And probably the biggest piece of news in the last few days, really, as we record this, is that the Church of England have uh, fired its independent safeguarding panel. Um, we were not going to talk loads about this because I think more information about this is going to emerge and we might have to retackle it in a bit more depth at some point. But essentially, there's been for a little while a bit of public disagreement between the kind of management of the Church of England and the independent safeguarding panel. There was a new chair put in who was also the chair of the National Safeguarding Panel, which is obviously a conflict of interest and also kind of contradicts the word independent there. And then you had two other genuinely independent members. 
there had been a move where the independent safeguarding panel was talking about becoming entirely separate to the Church of England, um, and there's been some some level of disagreement. This has resulted in them essentially disbanding this panel. Um, it has been very controversial. Uh, people have gone to try and defend it and looked uh, very silly. We're not going to talk about this loads, but it, it really does form an important part of the context that right now the National Church of England is playing silly buggers with its safeguarding oversight. Yeah, I mean, the idea of having an independent safeguarding board that can be wrapped up and uh, done away with overnight. In fact, actually not even overnight, an hour. Jazz Sanghera and Steve Reeves were the two members. They were given an hour before it went to press release. So the fact that an independent safeguarding board can be wrapped up that easily. And that's quite common with the Church of England when they kind of grant power and authority. They often have in there a clause that it could be just wrapped up with with very little consultation. It really does make a mockery of the idea of independence. And, it you know, Church of England, as part of the ISCA inquiry, said we are going to make moves to have an independent board. They had an independent board. The independent board got to publish one report about a case of Mr. X. It was pretty scathing of the Church of England's response. And then a whole range of things happened. And then the Independent Safeguarding Board was wrapped up with them saying the Church of England needs to think again. The Archbishop's Council needs to think again about what it's doing about this. And at some point we will create another one. Does it inspire confidence for survivors? Survivors, I mean, there are people, everyone... There was no one right answer here, but survivors generally were talking positively about the Independent Safeguarding Board over the National Safeguarding Team. And this also comes in amongst news that there has been some more information given about the compensation awards that the Church of England is having to pay and the scheme that would administer that, which has been really, really hard won from survivors. I don't want to dismiss the work that survivors have put into making that scheme as good as it possibly can be and yet it's still not good enough (laughs) there still is no date for when that scheme will open there's still not information coming about exactly how it's going to work so i really don't want to dismiss the work that survivors have done to make particularly survivors voice that have done and the work they've put in but with these two big news stories within a week it is very hard as a survivor and as a survivor myself in the Church of England to think that the Church of England is really wanting to learn any lessons at all. And I think that one hour notice thing is really, really revealing because that is not how you treat people who you're working together with. That's how you treat people who you are viewing as adversaries, right? You know, you give them an hour's notice because you have to tell them in advance, but you want to give them as little time as possible to react, respond or, you know, make their own statements. I think that's super revealing that, that this, they knew that what they were doing would face a lot of opposition. And one of the ways they managed that was to limit the amount of time these people had to respond. It also shows an almost complete disregard for the survivors that Jazz and Steve were working with because they were working on cases. They were communicating with survivors who perhaps are in a particularly vulnerable place of, of trying to share their stories. And these, and Jazz and Steve had no time whatsoever to prepare people for this news breaking. So if you're a survivor and you've just got the confidence to talk and then you see in the news it's all been, you know, wrapped up, done with, 
that must be devastating. So the Church of England showed a huge amount of disregard, I think, to survivors in that move. Yeah, I think it's worth noting here that uh, there is a distinction between the Church of England. When we talk about that, we're talking about the national organisation and individual churches. There are no doubt individual Church of England churches that are good on safeguarding, that are appalled at what's happening and want to work with people. So when we're talking about this Church of England, we're talking about that national structure. Undoubtedly, there are also abusive and dangerous churches in the Church of England, so we're not dismissing that. But it isn't. Because of the size and complexity of the Church of England, there are parts of it, particularly on a local level, that, that are really good on this stuff. But the national church is really letting the side down. Let's transition now into our main segment where we're going to carry on discussing some of this, but we're not going to talk about the specific stories, but instead we're going to hopefully hear some of your research and some of the stuff that you've been looking into. Um, you talked a little bit already about contextual safeguarding, which I think is really important, but um, this question of what is it that makes churches more or less susceptible to issues of abuse? Um, and I think it's important to say here that abuse happens in all forms of, of churches and that even the most brilliantly safe churches with all the right things in place can still have stuff happen, but it's about how that's responded to and whether it's more or less likely within that particular church. So I guess in some ways, the first question to really ask is when we talk about abuse and you actually focus specifically on spiritual abuse what what are we talking about because it's a word that we use but actually it can be quite difficult to define and anyone who's worked in similar fields to me has sat through training where we talk about all the different types of abuse and i've done it maybe a hundred times and they almost always have different categorization systems and different beliefs about what does and doesn't qualify and all this sort of stuff so when we talk about abuse what what are we actually talking about yeah, and I get asked all the time, you know, what what do I mean by spiritual abuse? So that that's the particular area that I look at. It's also sometimes called religious trauma. Generally speaking, they're the same kind of phenomenon, but different people prefer different language. So the definition that I am using the most is from Lisa Oakley, and spiritual abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. It is characterised by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behaviour in a religious context. Now, spiritual abuse can have a deeply damaging impact on those who experience it. So, spiritual abuse could include manipulation, exploitation, enforced accountability. So, enforced accountability here could be, you know, mentoring, could be having a one-to-one, could be you can't keep anything back from the minister or the leader. It could be a whole range of things. It could be censor- it can include censorship of decision making. So you can't make a decision on your own. You have to have spiritual authority as part of that, or at least the decisions that you make aren't totally yours to make. A leader, and that might be the, the actual leader of the church, or your abuser could be someone who's in the congregation with you as well. But whoever it is, they'll sort of maybe say, 
when I talk to God, that's not what I thought God was saying about you or, or that kind of language. It includes requirements for secrecy and silence. This can be, we don't want people outside of the church to know that we are fighting. We don't want people to, if you tell people outside of the church this that, and the other, they'll never come to faith and you might be damning them. It could be a whole range of things. It can also include non-disclosure agreements. Spiritual abuse can include coercion to conform. There is a certain way to be in this church that may be everyone raises their hands. It could be everyone bows their heads. It could be everyone does this or does that. Whatever it is, or that's not how we do things around here. It could be, well, of course you'd want to join a home group, or of course you'll have so-and-so over for dinner. Of course you'll, of course you'll, of course you'll, etc., etc. It can also include control through the use of sacred texts or teaching. So, um, Question not the Lord's appointed is a verse that sometimes get, gets used. Pay the worker what they're worth. All this kind of, but also a whole range of stuff around Jesus. You know, pick up your own cross. Things are hard right now. That's fine. That's what you're meant to do. I know you're feeling sad because you've been bullied, but you've got to pick up your own cross, etc., etc. I'm still going with the symptoms. <laughs> it's, it's, it's heavy reading, I know. Um, so it can be the requirement to be obedient to the abuser, so that you have to be obedient to them. It can be the suggestion that the abuser has a divine position, that they've been put in that place by God. This could be that other people see them as prophetic, as someone with a particular ministry, as someone who's particular wise. It could be a whole rate, that divine position can be very obviously done. As with all this, it can also be really subtle that that person is in that place because of where God wants them. And that might be the person says, this is it. But it may be that actually they're saying, it's just so lucky that I'm here, you know, whatever that is. Isolation as a means of punishment. So suddenly being dropped from from rotors, being suddenly not the favourite person, suddenly finding you're not invited to certain things or what have you, that sense of being isolated. And you often know why. It doesn't make any sense why, but this sense of I've done something wrong here. And finally, superiority and elitism. So there's a lot of symptoms there. And and there's also lots of overlaps between spiritual abuse and financial abuse, spiritual abuse and, and indeed sexual abuse. So there's also kind of what we might say as comorbidities or, or simply overlaps there. What I'm researching is what this looks like in a religious context. So that's why spiritual abuse. And it's starting to understand all those symptoms, how they come about within certain contexts, what these things look like in the Church of England, and to what extent is Church of England practices that we all inhabit and do somewhat complicit in perhaps allowing this abuse to continue. So obviously, being a member of a church is something that is a decision it's optional in some way you know people opt in and they can choose to opt out of being part of that church obviously there are ties or whatever and most of the time unless you're employed by that church the kind of hard power over your finances over your life choices all this sort of stuff it's not it's not really there if you're just a congregant in the congregation so when you're talking about people being abused in this way and made to do this how is it that there is power there that enables this stuff to happen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, probably first of all, it's important to note that 
spiritual abuse can happen by anyone to anyone. So it's not uncommon for the the leader, the vicar, whoever that is, to be the victim of spiritual abuse from someone in the congregation. That may indeed hold a lot of actual kind of power over them in terms of, you know, if we don't want you at this church, we'll have you gone or, or whatever, or, you know, simply someone who can actually control a lot. So it can, it can fall along hard lines in terms of a chief executive, especially when we talk about parachurch organizations as well, where it occurs. In terms of your, your sort of average church per se, we're talking about soft power. And we are talking about a lot of the time, good Christian ideas and ideals that become tools of abuse. So a fairly frequent one that we talk about a little bit in spiritual abuse is a theme of unity. Unity is good. We as a church would like unity. We'd like to be in harmony and in agreement with one another. We'd like to be united. Two areas where this can then become problematic is that unity can become uniformity. And so actually, and you walk into a church and you, at first, everything's fine, everything's lovely, everything's wonderful. You may be part of that church for a couple of years. And over time, you start to realize that we've all started to kind of maybe, maybe not dress the same way, but, but there's certainly, and we've had this before about skinny jeans and sneakers or super dry keeping the Church of England afloat. In my particular area of the world, it's Lucy and Yak. Everyone's wearing, you know, but. That's, that's class based as well. There's a lot of class elements to that and, and racial elements as well. There's that. Then you kind of also, that uniformity becomes a bit more, we all interpret this in a particular way so we all have a similar understanding of what's going on in the cross we all believe that this particular type of worship is the best one worship whatever that is however that might look it starts to be uniformity and you know it's uniformity when when doing the opposite doing outside of that has a, a bad reaction and that's one of the ways that people start to be controlled is actually that uniformity and that is crowd controlled that is not just one person to do that in at certain point actually the congregation that you're part of are policing that behavior as well the other area where we see unity a good idea become something positive um, something negative is when that unity is maintained at the cost of you where you're being told that to raise an issue, raise a concern, challenge a behavior would cost the whole church's sense of unity, that you would bring disunity. Not the person who did the bad behavior. They're not the source of disunity. You are for making this an issue. And shouldn't you just forgive? And shouldn't you just forget? And unity and forgiveness means silence and secrecy. And that's when we again start to see the way that that power is wielded within a congregational setting with a lot of religious resources behind it to reinforce that this is the right thing. Of course, you should be the one to not break unity by speaking up because this passage and this passage and this passage and this biblical narrative and this biblical narrative and that prophecy and that all the rest of it. And it starts to build a picture which makes it quite hard to to be able to disclose, to be able to talk, to be able to speak out. That's just one form of power that can exist in congregations, in 
parachurch organizations in all sorts of places that can enable spiritual abuse to occur or can be part of spiritual abuse. Yeah, and obviously those religious narratives, they're really powerful. You know, we know that religion for good and for bad is an extraordinarily powerful way of creating structures and systems, but also creating kind of personal feelings and supporting people to behave in certain ways and make certain decisions. And if you're someone who's really invested in your religious life, in your religious community, sometimes you might just think that these people should just walk away when bad things start to happen. But it's so tough to walk away because religion is such a powerful thing in these people's lives. I mean, I say these people as though this doesn't apply to to us as well, but it's it's powerful and it can be really tough to walk away. There's also, I've heard people say before, why the hell should I walk away? This is my church, not not this abuser's space. I'm staying because this place belongs to me. And I think there's times where that's the right thing to do. I think there is times where people need to, to walk away and for their own safety. And I think the other aspect as well, and I think this is, you know, we're not, we're not talking a lot about capitalism this episode, um, but it's always in the background of everything we talk about. And I think we're increasingly seeing kind of social isolation. Uh, people are not in social units in the way they were even 20, 30 years ago. And a religious community is still a really strong source of community and leaving that or simply popping your head above the parapet and causing trouble within that community puts you at risk of losing a really important support structure, a really important social structure in a world where actually finding those is really, really tough. There is a sort of pattern that emerges of people's journey of exiting communities. Now, not every journey will be exactly the same, but there's a sort of general consensus, which is that someone joins a church and they have an initial positive experience. They are happy there. They are welcomed. They are part of the community. They feel, you know, all the kind of normal stuff. And that can go on for years. That, that isn't just six months. That can go on for a number of years. It may be very quickly like six months, but often it is a lot longer. And then something happens. Something that's just a bit weird. And it just sort of jars. Perhaps the, Someone snaps at you and says, no, you're not doing that. That's that. And you go, oh, that was a bit, a bit odd. Or, or you're just kind of dropped from something. Yes, we were going to have you as part of that team, but actually we've changed our mind. Or, or whatever it is, there's something that's just a bit odd. It just jars for you. And often the response, either from yourself to yourself, or from people, is, I think you've just been a bit sensitive. Or... The person was just in a bit of a mood, or they've got a funny sense of humour, or whatever it is. It, it, it's it's quite subtle. You can't quite put it into words. That, of course, is is quite a gendered thing as well, because I think women are generally taught by society to default to that sort of thing, particularly when it's a man being unnecessarily aggressive or rude. I think there's a very gendered dynamic where women are taught to file that away as, oh well. He's probably had a tough day, or oh, you're just being sensitive, which is a classic kind of misogynistic narrative, right? Yeah, and it can also happen along um, the line of disability, and um, particularly neurodiversity. Are you sure you interpreted that correctly, or you know, the, you become the problem? Are you, are, you know, are you sure? And obviously, there's a lot of gaslighting in there. Are you sure? But it is an isolated occasion. 
it was strange, it was weird, sure, but there's all this positive stuff and um, it didn't happen again. And so you, you go back, you recommit, you maybe, you know, you didn't leave, but you just go back to normal. And then there often then becomes a, a season where that cycles round, where something happens, it's followed by perhaps a, a sort of apology, maybe they do apologise, or maybe it's ignored or what have you, and then you recommit, and it goes round like that for quite a while. And there's often a number of kind of failed attempts to leave. You try to leave, and something happens that brings you back, and then maybe reparations are made apologies are made assurances are made it may be that you're just completely scared you know if you you know in again mark two examples if you leave this church you are no longer under my protection and therefore you're vulnerable to spiritual attack or, or whatever that language is whatever happens that person will often have a few attempts of trying to leave and will be persuaded or bullied into staying and eventually something break something happens either it's so egregious or it's just the seventh or eighth time and a person then leaves the community now that pattern may be familiar to you is a pattern we see quite a lot in domestic violence it is not as simple as why didn't you just leave and what is a little bit frustrating with spiritual abuse is people are starting to get that with domestic violence one and interpartner violence one cannot simply just leave it's not as easy as that what is happening less so is people having that same understanding of empathy when it comes to church. But we have the same pattern and there are lots of overlaps in terms of the love bombing, in terms of assurances being made and broken, in terms of a whole range of things that makes it really hard to leave. There are carrots and there are sticks being thrown at you left, right and centre. One of those is that there is social elements about why it might be hard to leave. Churches mean a lot to a lot of people. There could be someone's entire social network. It could be that actually the church has really propped you up at a really hard time. Maybe the church had the food bank that you were using. Maybe the church all got together to help you move house. Maybe this, that and the other. Rachel Held Evans, in, in one of her books, talks about when she decided she was done with church, had a thought of, well, who will bring me a pot roast when I'm sick? It's a really tangible and real thing that people go through where the church has become their social network and indeed their support, their safety net. And so actually simply leaving a community could be really hard for all kinds of reasons. Please hear me when I say isolation is a very, very common effect. People are not exaggerating when they say they may lose their entire social network. They're not wrong. People often who have been who have left a church are shunned by the existing members of the church. They're ignored either because they've been told to shun them or just because they don't really know what to say or what to do. People become the subject of prayer requests, not the subject of a coffee. <laughs> mm. And so people do lose their social networks. They lose their support nets. They lose their good name. They may be spoken about in ways that they would never consent to. You know, rumours are passed around, letters are sent, etc., etc. And indeed, they may lose the financial impact here of career potential if they were working in the kind of church sector at all. And a whole range of other kind of hard-to-put-down benefits that come with it. So there's a real cost to leaving these communities, which 
is part of this picture of why it's often so hard to disclose. And then you have the backdrop of all the things that's going on in the Church of England and in the press at the moment that makes you think, I'm not even going to be believed. I'm going to go through all this, and at the end of the day, I'm not going to be believed. And if I am believed, it's probably not going to be any real meaningful change. It's a really bleak picture at times for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think both you and I have have left abusive religious communities at times in our past. And I think one of the things that made that possible for both of us is that whilst we were members of those communities, to greater or lesser extent, they weren't our whole lives. We had communities and interests and friendship groups outside of those communities. But so many people don't have that. And I think sometimes it's on purpose, but sometimes people do it without really thinking about it and create these environments that are so totalizing within their religious communities. You know, a lot of big churches, you could fill your entire week after work and weekends with stuff based around that community. You know, different groups that are meeting each day of the week, different opportunities to volunteer, go to all the services that they offer, you know, help out with the youth, help out with this, you know, go around for a cup of tea with someone who also goes to that church, have Sunday dinner with, you know, there's all sorts of ways in which these communities can just become your entire life outside of work if you happen to be working and possibly your entire life completely if you do work for them. And that then, you know, what you ask people is not just to quit one of their hobbies, you know, or just stop going to that church and instead take up badminton. You actually ask them to, to radically change their entire life to leave that religious community. And that's not even mentioning, of course, the religious aspects where where God and the Bible and religion are utilised in a way to to make it really hard to leave and to make it really hard to recognise that what people have experienced is abusive. Yeah, I mean, the way that God is wielded in, in these settings is is terrifying. And it's definitely an area of further research within spiritual abuse kind of studies within the UK. A lot of the work of spiritual abuse has been done within the field of psychology, um, which has been brilliant. <laughs> Not dismissing it at all. But some of the theological questions about where is God in this and, and what is going on with people's own theology have been not as broadly studied. And it, it'll change in the next few years, but, but it's definitely an area of further research. Because what happens often in these settings is the abuser assumes a sort of divine authority, divine position, and often injects themselves between you and God. So your relationship with God now has a third partner in there. And that third partner is saying, you can only really hear from God with me. Or perhaps it's saying something very different. So God might be saying, you are unconditionally loved. This person is saying, mm, you're conditionally loved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. There are conditions here. <laughs> <laughs> and so... What can be going on in people's minds is that their faith is being transformed into something that is a lot scarier. And so it's not like people can leave with the confidence of knowing that God is for them and supports them. They've often lost something of God, if not all of God, in that process as well. Because of who God is made to be, when when scripture is weaponized against you, 
when divine authority is used by humans to control you. When biblical narratives, when Christian ideals like unity, love, forgiveness have become part of your abuse, you don't have God anymore, really. Not in the same way that perhaps you did at the beginning. And for a lot of people, they don't have any faith at the end of this because how could you reconcile this experience with a loving God? How could a loving God let this happen? Those people who do have faith at the end of this, it's often very hard to kind of go back to a faith that was familiar to them. They often pivot and and find something that is more liberating. I know for me personally, I mean, I cried every Sunday for a a year after I left a spiritually abusive church because Sundays was just, I I knew where I was meant to be. I was meant to be in a church and I was meant to be participating in that church, active in the church. That was what I was meant to be doing. That's what my whole lifetime was meant to be doing. Instead, I wandered along to a very lovely little Baptist church where I didn't tell anyone my name because I was so scared and just came for the service, cried and left. Didn't participate, didn't, you know, get involved. But it was too painful. I couldn't read the Bible on my own for years because individual Bible study had become such a power game used against me that the idea of reading scripture on my own as kind of a quiet time was so triggering I couldn't do it. Turns out I love communal Bible reading. Didn't know that. Now I know that. It's really exciting. Um, and it's only now, 10 years on, can I start to think about getting back into individual Bible reading. It's really hard to put into words the, the deeply damaging effect that this, pe- this has on people's lives. Spiritual abuse is, is not minor <laughs> in mm. any way. And what can be a little bit frustrating is that reporting structures that currently exist in churches are almost entirely focused on financial abuse and on sexual abuse. And until your experience triggers one of those two things you can be ignored told it isn't a safeguarding issue etc etc and that's a problem yeah that is a huge problem this has obviously been quite a uh, depressing episode so far um, and I don't want to just brush all this under the carpet. I think it's really important that this is a depressing episode and that we have to sit with the, the pain and the horror but I do want to also ask a question about w- what we can do we aren't I would hope stuck in a situation where the only forms of church that are possible are ones that enable this sort of abuse so how can we how can we counter this stuff? What can we do to to deal with it, I guess, even if it's just smaller stuff that we as individuals can do or whether it's you know, stuff that needs to change more more big picture. Yeah, I mean um, it is worth saying that the it is not without hope. Um as as we mentioned I think previously on this podcast, I am training to be a priest in the Church of England, so I obviously do think that there is better. We can do and be better. And and indeed there are plenty of churches that are doing brilliant, brilliant stuff. 
Um, unfortunately, like every primary school teacher ever, we have to focus on the naughty ones. <laughs> <laughs> that is just the way it goes. So what would I say? I would say get educated. Um, spiritual abuse is now mentioned in some safeguarding training, but often in not very much depth. Go read some stuff, go read some articles, go attend some training, go, get educated. The more you know, the better ally and advocate you can be. I would say respect difference in your congregations, in your places, because when we accept that we can disagree well, we can allow people to be who they are instead of forcing them to be who we want them to be. We can understand unity as not uniformity, but as a collection of different souls with different opinions, different voices, different views, who find a way of being one. That kind of environment is not going to protect you. Nothing is going to, you know, you can't just rest in your laurels, but it is a good place to start. To be gracious with one another, be kind and be humble. Very simple words, very hard to live out, but they do create safer spaces. And the last one I'm going to say is respond well. When disclosures are made about someone that you know, either personally or you just know them because you've heard about them, there are a couple of reactions that are fairly common. One is to say, that's such a shock, I could never have imagined, which can show that actually perhaps you haven't been listening. It could be your reaction maybe, but they're such a lovely person. They were so kind to me. Again, that narrative feeds into a broader narrative that kind people never do bad. And so therefore, anyone who is kind is clearly not going to be abusive. It's not a narrative that's going to help people at all. Um, and it can make it a lot harder to make disclosures because trust me, you know that that person's already held in good regard. That's not news to you. <laughs> that's made it mm. much harder to talk about. The other response we can go to is, well, I always thought there was something funny there. Oh, I knew there was something odd. And while that may come out of a desire to be sympathetic and to tell the person that you really believe them, it can also have the effect of saying, well, why didn't you notice? You know, you silly thing. It was obvious that there was something dodgy there. It's not always helpful. So be mindful about how you respond. Think about when someone said something, when they maybe start to say, did so-and-so seem a bit off to you? Or indeed, they make a full disclosure. Respond well, be better. <laughs> Um, spend a bit of time thinking about how you might uh, make that person feel safe, feel heard, and enable them to to go down whatever journey is helpful for them. But let's just try and not be part of the problem. I think to close out this episode, we're going to do a bit of a Saint of the Week. Saint of the Week. The Saint of the Week that I've got for this this week is a woman by the name of Judy. Judy was a victim of Jean Vanier, who we mentioned briefly. Vanier was the founder of the La Arche communities that were communities, specifically Christian communities, where disabled and able-bodied people lived together and supported one another. Uh, Sarah and I both have some critiques of that, of that model, but it was a pretty widely respected and, and appreciated thing. It certainly wasn't a conservative form. 
So, you know, this, this abuse happens in all sorts of Christian spaces. Um, but a few years ago, after Vanier had died, Larche announced that it was doing an investigation into Vanier and subsequently concluded that he had abused a number of women over a number of years, following in the footsteps of his mentor, Thomas Philippe, who uh, also abused women in a specifically religious setting. Um, this investigation was brought about because this woman, Judy, had um, sent a letter um, to Larch explaining to them what had happened. This was not the first time that Larch was aware of this, but Judy was the first person to say that they could share the letter more widely in the community and that they had her permission to investigate and try and get to the bottom of what happened. It's also worth mentioning women called Donna and Cecilia, who were abused by Thomas Philippe, who was, as I said, Vanier's mentor. They actually made contact with Judy, who they'd known many years ago, thinking that she might have been a victim of Philippe, but discovered that Judy was actually abused by Vanier. Um, and they supported and encouraged Judy to bring forward her concerns to the Larsh community. I will give Larsh credit because they did really well in actually putting together an investigation that very seriously and publicly took accountability for, for the failings that happened there and set out a plan for moving forward. Um, there was a really good podcast about Vanier and his abuse called uh, Lead Us Not, yeah, which I recommend. It's uh, I think five or six half-hour episodes, so quite easy to get through in terms of time, but uh, some quite intense stuff in there. Um, and as part of that, uh, Judy shared some of her letter, and I'm just going to uh, read a little bit of what she said. I am not alone with the Pierre Thomas part of my story, as I am aware that many women have given their testimonies about their experiences with him. I also do not feel that I am alone with the Jean Vanier part either, even though I have never spoken to anyone who has shared my experience. But I believe I was only one of many impressionable young women who went to Jean for spiritual direction. I am not interested in any public disclosure of my story, but I think it should be known within Larch, as I believe it is now, and has been for a long time, a systemic problem that needs exploration. I hope that by bringing this to light, it will be easier for others to speak of their experiences in the knowledge they are not alone. Only then can true healing begin. And as I hope you've probably realised listening to what we've said so far, you cannot underestimate the bravery and the courage taken to, to share that, to to make Larch aware of that. Um, so, yeah, I think... Judy, along with Donna and Cecilia, is an extraordinary person. And, uh, yeah, it's just incredible that they were able to, to bring these stories to light. And I think what I was really struck in that letter is the sense of faith. She doesn't know for a fact that other people have experienced it, but has faith that by coming forward, she will be able to help others and, and bring the truth to light. Um, and so I think we really just wanted to end it this week by recognising the the courage and the brilliance of all the people who have come forward. Sadly, not everyone's had Judy's experience where an organisation or community has taken it seriously, but that doesn't mean they're any less brave and that what they've done is any less important or commendable. I just think it's, you know, 
so powerful that these people were able to, to take that step. I think you're right. The the courage that it takes, I think it's also probably worth shouting out all the people who live with these experiences and for all sorts of completely understandable reasons feel I can never say anything. And for all the people who have tried to say something and have been ignored. It is good and right to remember Judy, Donna and Cecilia. They they deserve our praise and they deserve all the recognition. And so do all the nameless victims that never feel able, never feel supported to come forward. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that will probably wrap us up this week for the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to that. We'll try and do a slightly lighter topic next time because that was quite intense, but I think it's really important to talk about this stuff. Sarah, you are currently undertaking some research around this topic. If there are people who are listening to this and maybe thinking, wow, I've had these experiences, I believe you'd be interested in speaking to them. Yeah, we're still. Uh, I'm still recruiting for a study at the moment on spiritual abuse in the Church of England. Um, that can be pretty much any part of the Church of England. There are a couple of exclusions, but um, you can find out more. So if that is something that you are interested in learning more about, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah L underscore MH, and you'll find on my profile there's a club participants kind of poster. It'll be it'll be pinned so you'll find it. If Twitter's not your thing, or you just don't like me enough to, to follow me, that's also fine. You can email me at sm2556 at pgr.aru.ac.uk and I can give you an information sheet and answer any questions that you may have. And obviously we will link that in the show notes, so if you are struggling to try and write that down, particularly in that thick Cumbrian accent... <laughs> Rude. Then you can find it in the show notes. You should also here plug your side podcast, the one you do when you're not too busy with this one. <laughs> yeah, so I also do a podcast called Recovering God, uh, which is about trying to understand who God might be when we strip away patriarchal notions of, of who God is. So it is kind of by Christian women, for Christian women, looking at all kinds of elements of feminism and intersectionality around that. That's right, a podcast, but for the ladies. <laughs> no, is that not? That's a tag you should use. Oh, no. Do you know, it's really not. And what's really fascinating is I didn't join the pod. I joined the podcast partway through, but when it started, it was the only one, only British Christian feminist podcast. Mm. So um, it's now not, which is really exciting. There's lots of other podcasts, but... But they're inferior. Yours is the best. <laughs> we were certainly the first. <laughs> yeah. As far as we know, we're still still the only one uh, cracking along our particular uh, furrow here. So I mean, we were for a few years. So yeah, yeah. so you know. Yeah. So we're we're really the kind of the obscure. with a you know. You won't be cool... though. Give it a few years. And yeah, of course. Once the revolution happens, it's oh, going to be okay. yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, Sarah, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening to us. Uh, you can find us in all the usual podcast feedy places. We are facebook.com slash bread and rosaries, Twitter, 
bread underscore rosaries and you can email us breadandrosaries at gmail.com we'd love to hear from people we have a website that is new and funky and has photos of us on and Adam has worked very very hard on it so uh, if you want to go and have a look at that that's breadandrosaries.com there's all sorts of interesting stuff on there including a link to the Patreon where you can give us some pennies if you feel so inclined to help us with hosting fees and the like no pressure as always Uh, that I think is the end of the podcast thank you very much for for listening everyone we'll see you next time with a slightly lighter topic thank you Sarah goodbye everyone bye Thank you.